Hey everyone, it's Brad here. Thank you so much for listening to us during these strange and difficult times we're living through. Sarah and I just wanted to give you a quick disclaimer before we jump into this podcast. So we are releasing this in the midst of the COVID-19 outbreak. Thankfully, we recorded a whole bunch over our winter break this year. And so we will still be releasing episodes every other Tuesday. Um, If we say anything that seems out of place, that's the reason. I hope you enjoy this episode. Come back in two weeks. Welcome back to 10 and 20, official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about interesting aspects of Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. My name's Brad. And my name's Sarah. Today we are covering Tennessee's attitudes towards secession before the Civil War. Oftentimes on this podcast, we'll talk about like an individual story, like one guy's story or one woman's story. But today we're going to talk about a topic that I think ties, like if if you pay attention to what we're saying today, it ties together a lot of things that we've discussed on this podcast because we bring up Tennessee secession all the time. Yeah. So I think there are a couple of people, if you haven't listened to our podcast before, that you should listen to first. Governor William Brownlow. Yep. His episode. Andrew uh, Johnson. The mm-hmm. episode we did on him. Andrew Jackson as well. Yeah, Andrew Jackson. And um, I would say Randall McGavick and John McGavick as well. Mm-hmm. If you haven't listened to those, I think they'll provide more context to this, and this will provide more context to their story as well. Exactly. Yeah, Randall is a really excellent point because Tennessee, as I'm sure most people listening to the podcast know, is not one of the original 13 colonies. But they still had very, very strong ties to the American Revolution. Tennessee was originally a part of North Carolina, and many of the original white settlers who who ended up in Tennessee came from portions of North Carolina and Virginia, which were two of the original 13 colonies. And many of these first immigrants to Tennessee had fathers or grandfathers who fought in the Revolutionary War. They grew up hearing the stories and seeing the birth of this brand new nation. And this is why we brought up Randall McGavick a minute ago is because not not that his father grandfather fought in the revolution but he grew up through this era he was born in virginia in 1768 he lived through the revolutionary war he lived through the signing of the declaration of independence and the articles of confederation the continental congress Uh, he would have lived through when the constitution was created and then he settles in tennessee in his 30s now we don't know if a guy like randall would have been pro-secession or not by the time of the Civil War because he didn't live that long. He died in 1843. But many guys in his generation and the one immediately after it, like his son, were kind of conflicted. They would have seen the Union as very important and believed in their right to own slaves. And Tennessee does vote in past present elections to support this. They support Thomas Jefferson. Again, they support Andrew Jackson. Both men who, despite their flaws, wanted to keep the country united. And it's important to remember at this point in time, a person could be both pro-slavery and pro-union. And some of those people even existed during the Civil War. 
They believed in the right to own slaves, but they believed the country was too important to sacrifice for, for any individual issue. And because of all this, originally Tennesseans did not really show that much enthusiasm for breaking away from the Union. And I guess we've used the word Union and Secession or the words Union and Secession a bit now. We should probably explain that to our listeners so we're all on the same page. The comparison that I always draw is imagine we all sit down to play a game. Like we were all sitting down to play a game of Monopoly, which we all know sometimes you get really frustrated when you play Monopoly. But as much as you can get frustrated, there's no there's no rule that says a player can just get up and walk away. By sitting down to play the game, you have agreed that you're sitting down to play the game through to its conclusion. Yeah, there's an unofficial social contract that all the players agree to yeah when they sit down. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and imagine you're playing a game Monopoly and written in the rules is a rule that says you can actually change the rules if you vote mm-hmm. to agree on it as mm-hmm. a group. Just like you can amend the Constitution if you have enough support. But again, you can change the rules, but you can't just tip the table over and walk away. And so many Tennesseans felt that kind of conflict. Yeah, they should believe that war could be through legal means and should be averted. But of course not everybody thought this way. There had been disagreement as to the rights of states, mainly over the issue of slavery, as far back as the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s, with the secession crisis, uh, mainly in South Carolina. And in 1850, so about 10 years prior to the Civil War, Southern leaders had held a convention in Nashville to discuss that very issue. So it was a conversation that we'd been having as Tennesseans for a long time. In the presidential election of 1860, Tennesseans had a choice of three different candidates. They could have picked between the Constitutional Unionist, whose name was John Bell, and this was kind of a brand new party, the Constitutional Union, the Constitutional Union Party, or uh, John C. Breckinridge, who was the Southern Democratic candidate, or Stephen Douglas, who was the Northern Democratic candidate. By a slim margin, John Bell, the Constitutional Union Party, won. He won about 5,000 votes more than John C. Breckinridge, although Breckinridge did win Middle Tennessee. And again, Tennessee's by voting for this Constitutional Unionist Party agreed with their platform. It said to recognize no political principle other than the constitution of the country, the union of the states, and the enforcement of the laws. But I think it's good to note that Middle Tennessee here, the majority was for John C. Breckinridge. I know most of you guys are probably listening from Tennessee, so you're familiar with our three grand divisions. But for those of you who aren't, they are three sections of Tennessee that has played a tremendous role in political, socioeconomic, just geography, history of Tennessee. You know, Tennessee is a very long state. And so as people spread into the West, spread into Tennessee and settle down in different areas, they had different beliefs. And then also the geographic locations themselves played into those different beliefs. For instance, East Tennessee, very mountainous. You're not growing as much cotton or tobacco there. You're not, not as many people in West Tennessee own, or not as many people in East Tennessee own slaves. Whereas Middle Tennessee and especially West Tennessee were the opposite. So you have different opinions and political beliefs in those different divisions. Yeah. Franklin, being part of Middle Tennessee and Williamson County, was very evenly divided, just like most of Middle Tennessee. There's actually a newspaper that we had that was written actually prior to the Civil War, that side by side on the paper, there was an editorial with pro-Union sentiments and an editorial with pro-Secessionist sentiments. On November 6th, 1860, Abraham Lincoln won the presidential election 
carrying only 18 states and 39.8% of the popular vote. And immediately following Lincoln's election, the secession crisis began. States began to secede, which means to separate from the Union. And historian Mary Campbell, she does a really great job just summing up uh, all of Tennessee's attitudes in a short paragraph. So she wrote, A small body of extreme conservatives apparently entertained no fears concerning Lincoln's attitude toward the South and could not conceive of any action that he might take as furnishing sufficient cause for dissolving the Union. An overwhelming majority of the people of the state, however, although they found Lincoln's victory extremely distasteful, accepted it in a philosophical manner, they proposed quietly to await developments and, as opportunity offered, to try and compromise the dispute between the North and South. Yeah, so as the secession crisis begins, many Tennesseans are like, we're just going to wait and see how this thing plays out before we take a stand one way or the other. Another newspaper at the time, the Rutherford Telegraph, which had supported John Bell, the constitutional unionist, declared in an editorial after the election that it was the duty of all, regardless of their political affiliation, to acquiesce to the results. Those who did not were guilty of disloyalty and treason. Then one one other thing, and this is why we said go back and listen to the Andrew Johnson episode. Andrew Johnson, who was a senator from Tennessee at this point, on December 18th and 19th, I believe, on the eve of South Carolina seceding from the Union, got up in front of Congress and argued passionately that secession w- shouldn't even be an option. He argued that the state should remain loyal and that they should work within their means. They should play within the rule book to, to change the rules if they, if they so wanted to, but that just getting up and walking away wasn't an option. But many states, of course, did not listen to him. Because on December 20th, 1860, South Carolina secedes first. Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, and Louisiana all left in January of 1861, with Texas following in February. Now, Governor Isham G. Harris did call for an emergency session of the Tennessee General Assembly in January of 1861. So I just want to take a moment here to talk a little bit about Governor Harris because he's often considered the person most responsible for leading Tennessee out of the Union and into the Confederacy during the war. Um, Even before Lincoln's election, he'd already talked about how reckless fanatics from the North were trying to gain control of the federal government. So some people have speculated that possibly had Isham Harris not been Tennessee's governor, the state Mm -hmm. might never have seceded. But because Mm -hmm. of his leadership, um, it kind of pushed us in that direction. Another big thing that played out is on February 3rd, 1861, the Knoxville Whig, a newspaper, published a, a circular, which was like a, a pamphlet a pamphlet called the Secret Circular. And well, well, that's what the Knoxville Whig labeled it. And what this, what, what this circular proposed was that the secession movement was a lot stronger than it actually was. And it was, it was kind of a propaganda piece, but it got into the wrong hands. Yeah, and it called for basically the Southern Rights anti-coercion friends to canvas and to use pamphlet distribution to really just kind of up their numbers. And so this got in the hands of the pro-union postmaster. And so you have these different like groups trying to spread pop- propaganda for one side or the other. Yeah, not saying that 
pro-unionists, you know, did this too. Uh, they also held meetings in Memphis. They staged two large torchlight processions uh, in which secessionists responded then with by hosting a ball. <laughs> so, you know, getting both sides kind of doing propaganda pieces against each other. Fundraising campaigns. Mm-hmm. On February 9th of 1861, the state of Tennessee held a referendum to decide to hold a state convention to discuss the issue. So it's important to note, this is not Tennessee. This is not technically Tennesseans voting on secession or not. It's a vote in which um, the General Assembly asked Tennesseans to vote on if they thought they should vote on secession. Yeah, it was kind of a double vote. You had to vote whether you want to even hold a convention to talk about secession. And then you had to vote whether you wanted a pro-union delegate or a pro-secession delegate to go to that convention if it was held. So it maybe kind of boils down to a vote on secession or not, but it's it's indirect. It's, it's mm-hmm. should we hold this meeting or not? And if so, do you want to have a pro or anti-secession delegate? 54% of people voted to reject sending representatives to a, to a state convention by roughly 70,000 against to 58,000 for. So Tennesseans said, we don't even want to have this conversation right now. And even if a, conven- even if a convention was held, it would have been heavily pro-union. Close to 89,000 votes were cast for union delegates and 23,000 were cast for secessionist delegates. But despite the fact that they voted for no convention, throughout March and April, both sides continued to publish propaganda. And I think the most humorous piece is a satirical obituary uh, for Uncle Sam that was published in the Memphis Daily Appeal. It stated that Uncle Sam had died from irrepressible conflict disease after having met Abraham Lincoln. And what what is kind of the final tipping point for many was after the first shots of the Civil War were fired. So on April 12th and 13th of 1861, the Confederacy bombarded Fort Sumter, which is in Charleston Harbor in South Carolina. And this officially begins the the action of the Civil War. So as a reaction to this war, President Abraham Lincoln on April 15th called for 75,000 volunteers to serve for three months to basically bring these seceding states back in line. And while Tennessee was not specifically mentioned in the second proclamation of the day, which was asking for very specific states and the number of regiments that they should raise, Governor Harris immediately sent a telegram to Lincoln saying, Tennessee will not furnish a single man for the purpose of coercion, but 50,000 if necessary for the defense of our rights and those of our Southern brothers. So Governor Isham Harris is telling Lincoln, not only will we not help you put down the rebellion, if you press us, we're actually going to send guys mm-hmm. to fight against you. Mm-hmm. So I feel like for many, many people in Tennessee believed that states should not secede from the mm-hmm. Union. Or I should say many people in Tennessee believed that they did not want to secede from the Union, but that the other, ten- mm-hmm. the other Southern states should be allowed to. Yes. And when Lincoln mm-hmm. called for troops to put down the rebellion, that was kind of the last straw. Yeah, they didn't want to fight against other Southerners. And three other states felt the same way, because just five days after this proclamation, Virginia seceded. Then Arkansas and North Carolina do so in May. Another historian, whose name was Daniel Crofts, described this transition of Tennessee's sentiment when he wrote, Unionists of all descriptions, both those who became Confederates and those who did not, 
considered the proclamation calling for 75,000 troops disastrous. Having consulted personally with Lincoln in March, Congressman Horace Maynard, the unconditional Unionist and future Republican from East Tennessee, felt assured that the administration would pursue a peaceful policy. Soon after April 15th, a dismayed Maynard reported that the president's extraordinary proclamation had unleashed a tornado of excitement that seems likely to sweep us all away. Men who had heretofore been cool, firm, and union-loving had become perfectly wild and were aroused to a frenzy of passion. For what purpose, they asked, could such an army be wanted but to invade, overrun, and subjugate southern states? The growing war spirit in the north further convinced southerners that they would have to fight for our hearthstones and the security of home. Immediately to Governor Harris, so this is before Tennessee's officially seceded, began to mobilize the military, and he submitted an ordinance of secession to the General Assembly and began kind of secretly, you know, talking to the Confederate government. On June 8th, 1861, Tennessee held another referendum. This time, Tennessee voted in favor of secession with a vote of 104,913 for secession to only 47,283 against secession. Although different sources have numbers that can be a little few hundred more or less from I don't know if that's Yeah, I just said more so that for us. The deciding votes came from Middle Tennessee. East Tennessee held firmly against secession and West Tennessee had a heavy majority in favor of it. In February, 51% of people in in Middle Tennessee voted against the convention and in June, 88% voted in favor. So Middle Tennessee was really the deciding factor here. Yeah, and that's a 30% is kind of a big jump to go from we don't even want to talk about secession to we're all in it now. And so Tennessee did become the 11th and final state to formally withdraw from the United States and join the Confederacy. So they did this by releasing a Declaration of Independence and Ordinance. Um, It's very similar to most of the other ordinances from the seceding states, but it does differ a little bit from Mississippi and Alabama, which it does not mention slavery at all. And it does differ a little bit from Alabama and Texas because those both state that they were then going to immediately join the Confederacy. And Tennessee's does not do that. Some of the states who seceded declared their reasons for Mm -hmm. why they left. Others just said, we believe we have the right to leave, so we're going to do Mm -hmm. so. Tennessee seems to be kind of more the second, right? Yeah, it's actually a very short document. And I think we're just going to read kind of like the first little paragraph here to kind of give you an idea that it really is kind of a declaration. It, it models itself off of the Declaration of Independence. A portion, the, the section Sarah's referring to says, we, the people of the state of Tennessee, waiving any expression of opinion as to the abstract doctrine of secession, but asserting the right as a free and independent people to alter, reform, or abolish our form of government in such manner as we think proper, do ordain and declare that all laws and ordinances by which the state of Tennessee became a member of the Federal Union of the United States of America are hereby abrogated and annulled, and that all the rights, functions, and powers which by any of said laws and ordinances were conveyed to the government of the United States and to absolve ourselves from all the obligations, restraints, and duties. So it is, we're done. It's like their breakup letter. We're done. Yes, exactly. And if, if that's not bad enough, they're also going through a gubernatorial election at this point in time. Which is forgot. Gubernatorial is such a funny word. It's just a governor election. Yeah, they're, they're electing a new governor. Uh, well, sort of. So there's basically two main candidates. 
William H. Polk, who was a brother of James K. Polk, ran as the Unionist candidate, and Governor Harris as, of course, the pro-secessionist candidate. And Harris does win this election. So now Tennessee, again, is kind of voting again then for secession. Yeah, secession. East Tennessee, though, is kind of a different story. Yeah. Um, Not everyone in Tennessee wanted to leave the Union. As we've kind of discussed already, East Tennessee was opposed. And so East Tennessee would hold several conventions to discuss how they would react independently from the rest of the state. In fact, this wasn't anything new. Throughout Tennessee's history, East Tennessee, due to its history and geography, often held different political opinions, like we mentioned earlier. Many thought that the legislator often regarded, often showed favor towards the other two and forgot about the East, especially regarding funding. So this is not a new problem. East Tennessee always felt a little bit different. In fact, in the 1840s, a group of abolitionists tried to create a new labor colony in East Tennessee called Frankland. This was a throwback to the first attempt at Tennessee statehood that mainly consisted of East Tennessee in the 1700s, which was called the state of Franklin. It's still good to note that even though the general sentiment leaned toward being more pro-Union East Tennessee, there were still both those who espoused the cause of the South and slave owners in East Tennessee, too, who would have rather join the Confederacy. So it's not an exclusive idea for everybody. So rumblings of this occurred even before Tennessee's secession. Governor William Brownlow, so go back and listen to his podcast if you haven't already, published in his newspaper, The Knoxville Whig, an editorial titled, Let East Tennessee Secede. It stated, quote, If by hook, Tennessee shall madly rush out of the Union— let the delegates elected from East Tennessee enter their protest and secede from the rest of the state and form an independent mountain state of Frankland. We can never live in a Southern Confederacy and be made hewers of wood and drawers of water for a set of aristocrats and overbearing tyrants. Our brave boys are not willing to be disenfranchised because of their poverty. So, again, this is before Tennessee officially secedes on June 8th, East Tennessee holds its first convention. It takes place on May 30th and 31st in 1861 in Knoxville. So 469 delegates arrive for this convention from 28 East Tennessee counties. And they unanimously adapted 12 resolutions denouncing the Declaration of Independence that the state government had released that would be up for a referendum vote on the June 8th. So these these resolutions basically stated And I quote, that the people of East Tennessee have ever been, and we believe still, are opposed to it, secession, by a very large majority. They call on the people of East Tennessee to avoid warfare at any cost. In fact, says avoid the waste of blood and treasure of our state and stay with the Union. I love this kind of standoff that's happening between different, like, Governor Harris told Lincoln, if you do this, we'll send troops to fight against you. And then East Tennessee is saying to the rest of Tennessee, if you secede, then we'll secede from you. So it's like this, you know, all these like call and response kind of things. The convention met for a second time in Greenville from June 17th to 20th, which was at that point after Tennessee had seceded. This meeting consisted of 285 delegates. They produced a declaration of grievances suggesting that the outcome of the June 8th vote was the result of fraud and intimidation by pro-secessionists in West and Middle Tennessee. 
At first, one of the delegates argued that East Tennessee would remain neutral during the war and any military attack would be met with retaliation. East Tennessee companies would soon be formed for self-defense. However, some other delegates viewed this as too extreme. It would only lead to more bloodshed. So eventually they created a memorial to send to the state government, requesting East Tennessee be allowed to separate from Tennessee. On June 28th, the Tennessee General Assembly received these resolutions And after a day of deliberation, the appointed committee questioned whether the convention truly represented the the sentiment in East Tennessee and expressed their own hope that those in East Tennessee would accept Tennessee's secession and decided that no action would be taken until the next legislative session. Essentially, this assembly told East Tennessee, "Mm, you're not really allowed to do that. (laughs) We're allowed to secede from the country. But you're not allowed to secede from us. Yeah, you have to wait till we vote to allow you to leave. So it's a little bit... <laughs> seems a little unfair. Yeah, it seems a little bit unfair. But the rest of the country was all adamantly for East Tennessee becoming its own state. The New York Times praised the convention. It wrote, Literally surrounded on all sides by infrared enemies, the bold mountaineers of Tennessee have dared to be free. And so not only did the, did the state general assembly tell East Tennessee they couldn't, they couldn't secede. During this time, Confederate regiments began invading East Tennessee. In fact, a regiment of the Louisiana Tigers harassed convention delegates by stealing their breakfast and tearing down an American flag. Yeah, they were quite miffed that their breakfasts were being stolen, understandably. Yeah, their new slogan was, hands off our bagels. Yeah, That's a lie. That's a joke. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if... Yeah, when were bagels invented? That could be something that you guys write in a review for us. And many other pro-Union delegates in East Tennessee were arrested or fled north to escape and served in the U.S. Army during the war. The most brazen pro-Union wartime act that the convention did was an attempt to destroy nine bridges. In fact, on one day, November 8th, they destroyed five of those bridges, leading to the controlling Confederates to institute martial law. So there was actually, during the war, a like pro-Union sort of rebellions taking place in East Tennessee against the Confederate regiments in those areas. Yeah, at least on that one day in 1861. <laughs> the final convention meeting would be held on April 12th, 1864, when the convention met to address the Emancipation Proclamation and the 10% Plan. So the 10% Plan was another presidential proclamation. It was released on December 8th of 1863. And it basically just stated that any state in rebellion against the United States could be, could re-enter the Union when 10% of the 1860 uh, vote count had taken the oath of allegiance. And that all Southerners, except for those high-ranking in the Confederate Army or the government, would be able to receive a full pardon. All property rights of Southerners would be protected except for their slaves. And this meeting would be bitterly divided over the issue of slavery. After four days of personal insults and arguments, the convention remained deadlocked, and they adjourned the meeting, leaving the debate and the issues unresolved. Now, almost exactly a year after they held this final convention, Confederate General Robert E. Lee would surrender to U.S. General Ulysses S. Grant on April 9, 1865. In the post-Civil War years, Tennessee would have a very unique story as the first Confederate state to rejoin the Union. Its speedy re-entry was partially due to the sentiments of many Tennesseans before and during the war. 
However, we are out of time for today and talking about Tennessee during Reconstruction sounds like a perfect topic for a later episode. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast on Tennessee and Secession. If you would like to support this podcast even more, head to our website, which is boft.org slash podcast, where you can buy one of our t-shirts or sign up for our newsletter. Yes, and Brad, we're recording this in February. It's February now, right? So you guys will be listening to this a little bit. What just happened last night that you want to talk about maybe? So we have just released a documentary called The Battle of Franklin and the American Experiment. We had a sold-out premiere at the Franklin Theater on February 13th, and the DVDs of the documentary are now available from store.boft.org. Orders through the end of April will receive free shipping by using the coupon code FREESHIP04. So again, that's store.boft.org and use the code FREESHIP04 at checkout for free shipping. Thank you so much for listening.